0: Hi, everyone. This is Jen Petrie once again on our Hernia U podcasting station on Why You Do What You Do. As you all know, we have been taking a look into the lives of several of our KOLs during this COVID-19 period. And today, we're really lucky to have Mr. Andrew DeBeau with us to talk to us on a, a couple of topics in terms of what's going on um, with both him as well as the UK um, from his perspective. How are you doing today, Mr. DeBeau? Uh, very well, thanks. And yourself? Doing good, doing good. So the first question I have for you is how how is your hospital right now looking at determining urgent versus elective cases?
1: Um, well, obviously, um, we are in, in this sort of just over the peak of uh, of the first wave of COVID. So we're not quite sure where we're going. Uh, we are still in lockdown. There's still a social distancing. Um, and we are hoping that we're getting on top of the first wave. And in terms of being ready for that, it has really meant the cancellation of pretty much all elective uh, general surgery with some... Um, um, careful selection of urgent cancer cases. Now, you could argue that all cases uh, of cancer are urgent, but there's a balance between, do they need an operation now, or can they wait a few weeks? And the whole reason of uh, being reluctant to wade into a lot of elective surgery at present uh, is the fact that patients who have an operation, who catch COVID, either come into hospital with it, incubating it, or pick it up in hospital, they are much more likely to end up in the intensive care unit. And sadly, they are much more likely to die as a combination of having an operation and having a COVID infection. So that's really uh, been an emphasis to stop what we're doing, uh, both in terms of not overwhelming the ICU services and also trying to delay as many things as possible to a time that's safer most for the healthcare workers, but in particular for our patients.
0: And has there been any guidance from the RCS on how you're determining this?
1: Well, yes and no. Like all things at a time of uncertainty, and there's no doubt the COVID 19 pandemic is a great time of uncertainty, guidelines are coming out and they're changing uh sometimes uh daily now we're clearly looking ahead to trying to get back to um some sort of normality a lot of people talk about the new normal and whatever that's going to be and clearly we can't carry on doing what we did prior to the COVID outbreak as soon as things look like they're going uh, back to normal so there are guidelines coming out The uh, College of England had guidelines. Their last ones were from the end of um, April, and we're now uh, mid-May. Interestingly, the British Orthopaedic Association guidelines of getting back to uh, elective orthopaedic surgery came out today. And they're kind of all saying the same thing. We need to try and identify those patients who... In the non cancer, and here we're talking about hernias, so very few people yeah. need a hernia operation to save their life. They're the emergency uh, obstructed, strangulated hernias, and they're going to get done no matter what. We're talking about the elective cases, and in hernia surgery, hernia surgery is about improving quality of life. And if you're going to put someone in the intensive care unit and, and perhaps Uh, They die as a result of their operation. That's not great quality of life. So delaying them is is the obvious uh, thing to do. But then as we um, start to uh, focus again on patients with hernia, who should we do um, uh, first? And again, that will depend very much on the local uh, circumstances. There's no doubt that if we're doing elective surgery, everyone uh, is talking about a COVID light um, area. In other words, you don't want to mix people with, who are being treated for known COVID infections alongside people who we don't think are infected or carrying it, but are at risk of cross-contamination. And it's quite interesting, even with the design of uh, hospitals, um, most hospitals didn't really uh, have a design that allowed them to deal with virus outbreaks like this. There's too many shared lifts, shared right. kitchens, what have you. So, in one facility, having COVID-infected patients and patients who are who are who are covid like who we think don't have infection, keeping them apart uh, can be quite uh, difficult. Particularly if they then go on to need. Um, x-ray or whatever, there's a lot of mixing of patients. So what you do will very much depend on uh, this, the, the sort of prevalence of COVID infection at the time. If you could identify a short-stay facility, it may be in, in Scotland, for example, it could be a, a smaller private hospital. In Scotland, most hospitals have gone big. Big is now beautiful. And that's for lots of reasons that we don't need to do <laughs> it. We have very few little hospitals left. And it's times like this that the little hospitals that can do day case surgery, overnight stay, rapid turnaround of patients, rapid cleaning uh, facilities um, that allow us to get some work done. We do have some hospitals like that. We may try and make use of them. But the bottom line is that at this time, it's not safe to feel that you're safe. We know that patients um, or people, uh, they don't have to be a patient, that that people can be carrying the virus, be uh, passing the virus on to other people, but feel well or have minimal symptoms. So, it's very hard to screen uh, these patients, but we're getting better. You know, you can look at scoring systems where you can ask them about their symptoms, you can take their temperature, you can look at their uh, blood profile, are their lymphocyte counts high or low, and you can swab them uh, in a variety of orifices for uh, looking for the virus. We accept that none of these um, tests are 100% reliable, but if you put them together, you can stream patients down what I call this COVID-like path. And if anyone is positive uh, on testing, then you can um, cancel their operation, or perhaps a better word is postpone their their operation until they're uh, uh, COVID-free. So there are ways and means of identifying patients. Then there's what's wrong with them. Remember, hernia surgery is quality of life. So there are, uh, unfortunately, some patients who have had hernia surgery who have complications, maybe mesh infection, chronic sinuses, Things that are significantly affecting their quality of life, they're wanting to come back and to be fixed because of their current quality of life. Sure. We've got people out there who have very symptomatic hernias, difficult to work, difficult to look after themselves. Every day, they're reminded that they're in discomfort, even pain from the hernia. That's another group that we'd want to tackle early. Without being sexist, we know that women have a higher instance of femoral hernias, and we know that uh, femoral hernias have a higher rate of incarceration and strangulation. So perhaps uh, women, perhaps femoral hernias will be another group that we want to target early on. And for the others who are largely symptomatic but have a hernia, sadly, they're gonna to have to wait probably months to a year or two before their surgery.
0: Well, let me ask you a question on that. So with like, the concern that there will be difficulty achieving full operating capacity after COVID, how do you think, like, how do you expect and what's going to be your mechanism of reassuring patients and helping them to feel comfortable with coming back? And like, there's obviously the patients who are really wanting to come in. There's going to be quite a few that are going to be nervous about coming in and doing these elective procedures.
1: Oh, sure. And, you know, it's interesting that patients are nervous. We're also seeing um, people are just nervous. You know, there's talk about reopening schools and people are saying, well, I, as teachers are saying, I'm not sure I want to be in a classroom with a lot of kids. And parents are saying, I'm yeah. not sure I want my kid in a classroom with a whole lot of other kids. <laughs> um, so we are. There is. There's no doubt. There's fear out there. So we do have to um, encourage people to stay safe. Uh, whether you know, what's clear is washing your hands, uh, minimizing social contact, face masks might help. Um, so it's all those sort of things. Fortunately, governments have taken this on board and you can see that with their daily briefings, um, trying to reassure uh, the public, trying to um, give people clear views as to uh, what they should and shouldn't do. And within that, uh, from newspapers, media, we can also put out health information advice that, uh, and they're doing that just now because we think that people having strokes, heart attacks, and other things are not presenting to healthcare. So we're encouraging them now to start coming forward. It's safe to go to accident and emergency. Uh, and we are concerned that there may be excess deaths, not COVID related, but because people not seeking healthcare. So that's the current uh, target, but we will soon uh, have to start moving on to other patients like hernia patients. We've, we've started doing that already in a sense that we are reviewing our waiting lists. Uh, we are starting okay. to phone patients and ask them how they're getting on, have their symptoms uh, changed. We're good at collecting data on who's on the waiting list. We're not so good at having data to hand as to why they were put on the waiting list, except for the pathology that they had. They've got an inguinal hernia or an incisional hernia. So it does involve a little bit of legwork. Having said that, a lot of us, um, I I would hesitate to say, are not as busy. We are as busy as ever, but our work is (laughs) different. So I'm not seeing patients in clinics. I'm not doing lots of elective surgery. But I, So we all have some time to refocus our work. And quite a lot of the time is being spent on the on the telephone, phoning patients, asking them how they are. Uh, all our follow-ups just now are done uh, by telephone. And and um, uh, we in Scotland, like uh, I suspect the rest of the world, are trialing other ways of communication. Um, we have yeah. a new links. Um, There's been some concerns about using Zoom and other uh, processes, how well they are received with older people, that kind of thing. So we do have to have the technology for uh, um, the appropriate age uh, group. But um, there's no doubt that uh, medicine is changing, and I suspect it's changing not in the short term, but forever. And how we interact with patients will be uh, a new normal. How do
0: you see, like, so if I was a patient that came in two years ago and I'm looking to come in, let's say six months from now, a year from now. Is, is the hospital going to, how's it going to look different? Like, is the experience going to be different? Like, how do you perceive that? Like, what are the protective mechanisms, people, the hospital's looking to put up so pe- people can feel safer right? so that you're safe?
1: Yeah. I think if we, um, to be fair, I'm not a COVID uh, expert, but obviously I read a lot. About <laughs> that's fair. It. So I guess how the hospital will look will depend very much um, from how we tackle the disease. If we, if we can get so-called herd immunity, so there's a trickle-through of infections over the next while, and and, and if getting, if being infected gives us immunity, that's a start. If there's a vaccine, which means that we can protect... Uh, whether we need to protect healthcare workers, patients coming in, the vulnerable, what have you, then I suspect we will be returning to um, to normal. As an aside, it's quite interesting that the number of um, infections that we associate with being in hospital and antibiotics like uh, clostridium um, uh, gastroenteritis, those numbers in, in Scotland have gone down dramatically. And that's Perhaps because people are washing their hands more aggressively. It's perhaps because they're cleaning the wards more. And there's no doubt hospitals are not as busy because we have been stockpiling beds and and getting rid of everything that we cannot, don't have to treat as as an emergency so that we are ready for these large numbers of patients coming in. And maybe it's just an interesting ploy that running a hospital with more than 100% bed occupancy, in other words, as a patient leaves, you put another one in, um, is not the best way in modern healthcare. So it is an interesting reminder that uh, the number of people, the footfall, the speed of turnover, the state of cleanliness, and even simple things like washing your hands, uh, are it's a very good reminder that we perhaps got sloppy in those things.
0: I agree. I, I'm somebody who enjoys washing my hands, and I'm glad that other people are now washing their hands. I wish it was more normal before all this started, Um, but I think it's definitely been a benefit of the outcomes of, of what's going on with COVID. You know, my last question is you had mentioned how the landscape is changing in terms of your interaction with your patients, in terms of telemedicine and just utilizing different technologies. You know, another important factor is the interaction that you have with your colleagues. And during these times of isolation, you know, I know you in particular, whenever we see each other, it's in... Bali or it's in Dubai or it's it's somewhere else in the world and you're able to interact with your colleagues. How do you, how are you still able to interact with your colleagues around the world and learn from each other and just have these important conversations about what's going on and what needs to continue happening in the future?
1: Jed, you're casting aspersions there. You're suggesting that I'm a globetrotter and I'm going from one glamorous <laughs> uh, location to another, which is very untangling. I included myself uh, in that. <laughs> but... Um, but sadly, you're absolutely right. It is interesting um, uh, looking at um, at these interactions because you know the very reason that uh, you're in America and I'm in uh, Scotland and we're having this discussion. I suspect I've had more chats with international uh, colleagues in the last few weeks than I've ever had. The European Heritage Society has been really busy. Because we have had different workloads, we've had lots more um, European Health Society board meetings. We have formed a number of working groups that we uh, interact with. And then even in terms of um, our own hospital activities. So every Wednesday morning, we would have a morbidity and mortality meeting where we all crowded into a room. We discussed the morbidity and mortality of the week before. We discussed the plans for the following week in terms of staffing, and then we got on with our work. But if you're on nights or if you're on, or for a variety of reasons, you may not be at that meeting. Now it's much easier to be at that meeting because even if in your bed, you sign up uh, through Zoom or whatever, you keep your, your video off so they can't see you, but yet you get to hear all these things. So it is very interesting that while at times you think you're isolated at home, because generally we're at home if we're not working, um, it's actually allowed uh, a, a different form of cooperation and while um, these uh, you know uh, uh, interactions like Zoom, I don't want to choose any particular company, but uh, GoToMeeting and Zoom are the ones that I've been using most. There's also been a, a, a perhaps a better etiquette at these meetings where people are less likely to butt in and interrupt and talk over the next person, um, and so people um, are tending to say something sensible when it's required rather than just talking on and on and on and on. So. Uh, I quite like this uh, new normal. Um, It has allowed me to interact with people all around the world because um, there's the opportunities. People are setting up these uh, meetings. And that's also true of my own family um, uh, and uh, extended family. It's been a lot of fun, but we mustn't forget that this is a terrible time in the world. And for both people, healthcare workers who have died from COVID, this is a truly shocking uh, uh, period of
0: history. Well, you know, I agree with you. As somebody who um, enjoys interactive learning, obviously, and, and doing things, you know, whether it be through these multiple platforms you've mentioned, being able to connect with people. But I do probably like you miss, uh, miss seeing each other in, at different locations. I'm also a globetrotter, so I, <laughs> I wasn't accusing you. I enjoy those moments, and it's nice to see people in person, so I look forward to those days as well. I think you're right. Oh, that. Shit. Tell me yeah. just-
1: conferences for me uh, was obviously the learning, it was obviously the chance to make things happen, but it was also a chance just to uh, socialise and, and um, talk about uh, your problems, because often the your problems that we have are shared by others, to talk about our successes, uh, congratulate each other on the, on the good times. And we miss that, you know, the European Harris Society has been a highlight in the calendar in the yearly calendar for me and missing out this year is really sad. But it is exciting that we're going to try a, a virtual online uh, conference. Clearly, um, we won't have as many sessions. It has hit um, the sort of younger members who would like to present their papers. Um, uh, and so there, there is a fallout from the current situation, but um, it's still an opportunity to uh, to get together, try to feel connected, and even though not uh, in the same room, hear the familiar voices again. So we're looking forward uh, to that. And whether that's the new normal, I hope not. I hope to be uh, on a plane and travelling again. But for this poor old uh, world, it's, it's really interesting to see the hotspots of pollution disappearing.
0: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, you said something. And the one thing that I'm very excited about with the European Hernia Society being online is I'm hoping, to your point, we are able to see new faces joining who might not have been able to travel in the past and really would like to learn from key opinion leaders like yourself. And now all of a sudden they see the content and the quality of content that you guys are delivering from the European Hernia Society might be more inclined to jump on a plane next time we're able to do that and actually come out in person and see it because they they see what's happening.
1: Yeah, Yeah, there's lots of things behind this. I think also, too, one of the concerns I've had about meetings that we're in um, when we're together is that the same people uh, ask questions. And a lot of people are in the audience and they're a little bit nervous or for whatever reason, don't get up and ask questions. They often might tackle you afterwards on a one-to-one, which is good, (laughs) but then that information isn't. But the ability to ask questions online or through a chat forum uh, in a more anonymous way, you know, the, these are innovative ways of, uh, of learning, which I think may well bring some people out of their shell. And next time, they'll be more willing to stand up and ask, a. I was going to say, a proper question. I don't mean it that way, a question verbally as opposed to a, uh, an online question. I-
0: I couldn't agree more, and on that note, I want to thank you again for taking the time to do this podcast today. Um, It was really interesting to learn from you here what's going on um, locally with you in Scotland and just your perspective on how things are going to progress and the interaction with both the customers and your colleagues. Um, So once again, thank you for taking the time to do this. And for all of our listeners, thank you for listening to our Hernia U podcast please stay tuned for our future podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you on the European Hernia Society meeting May 28th. Thank you.
1: Thank you.